Welcome to the Some Issue Podcast, where we talk to Some Issue's finest about martial arts, training, and life's smaller questions. In this conversation, we talk to Sensei James about some minor changes in his life, the Buddhist religion, and a few rules to live by. This conversation reminds me of a quote from Henry David Thoreau, who said that, Not until we are lost do we begin to understand ourselves. What's new in your life? Uh, So not much is new, uh, just a few little things. Mm. Um, So little things, little things. uh, My fiance Fumi and I are are Mm. buying a house together. Mm. Uh, So we've, um, We've been, we moved in together about a year ago. And um, the, the next little thing is that we're, uh, we're getting married in two weeks. Oh, wow. Nice. We're, we're going to have a big reception later mm-hmm. um, when we can invite everyone when the pandemic's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our, our big reception was originally going to be September 18th. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've moved that to March of next year. Okay. Because we're now uh, expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, ah. <laughs> Nice. So we, we figured having a newborn like do one week before our big wedding reception was probably not a good idea. So we, uh, we moved the wedding reception. Ah, uh, for a baby. Uh. Yeah. So those are, that's what's new in my life. Like I said, nothing major, but <laughs> nothing major. <laughs> got a couple things going on. Yeah, well say, nothing major. So just minor stuff, you know, no big deal. Are you ready? Do you think, are you ready to be a father? Uh, I don't think you're ever truly ready. I guess I'm, you know, mm. ready as I'm going to be. I mean, we, we both want it. So um, mm. I think we're in a good place in our lives and mm-hmm. uh, we're ready in that regard. But I don't think you can ever be fully prepared. Okay. What's the one thing that you cannot wait to teach your kid? I can't wait to teach my kid how to play basketball. Basketball. All yeah. right. So uh, she's going to be you know, the future point guard of Atlanta's WNBA team, I'm pretty sure. Absolutely. That's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. It's a, uh, why basketball? I don't know, just because I like basketball. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're wrong. I'm, I'm excited uh, to have a kid to bring to the dojo and mm. and everything too. It's just, you know, you can't start them at come new, at least at something shoe until they're seven. Mm. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Something before then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, that, I'm not much of a soccer person, so that leaves basketball. Got you. Me either. And the only sport I know how to play well is actually basketball. Actually, I want I wanted to be a basketball play, basketball player when I was in middle school, yeah. but I stopped growing. So I was like, okay, probably not yeah. a good idea. <laughs> like I, I always wanted to be good at it, but I never was. So mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll I'll make sure to to start our our kid early and yeah be the, the baller that I never was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this one, this is what usually sometimes people are having kids for, right? Just fulfill, right. you know, exactly. Leave your dreams. <laughs> yeah. What's the point otherwise, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sounds like maybe we should start a some issue basketball team. Yeah. We should have like a dojo Olympics of which one of the events is three on three basketball. And then maybe some other stuff that we can figure out later, but mostly that. All right. All right. Awesome. I want to go back to one thing that I know about you, which is running, right? You went to Iceland to run a marathon, right? Uh, Norway, but yeah. Oh, Norway. So 
Why Norway? Why did you choose um, to go there? Because I just, it was, I don't know, 10 years ago, I read about this marathon in Norway. Hmm. Uh, it's called the Midnight Sun Marathon. And hmm. so it's north of the Arctic Circle. And you start the race at 8.30 p.m. So, hmm. and so you're finishing around midnight, but it's like daylight the whole time because it's north of the Arctic Circle and you do it near the summer solstice. And um, it's in this little town that's basically as far north as you can go and still be on the European mainland. Mm. Just, I thought this was the coolest thing ever. And um, I told myself then that that was going to be my first marathon. And oh. it took me eight years or so to finally do it. Mm. I kept my word and um, made that one my first marathon. Oh, wow. Wow. So I just I randomly stumbled across it and thought it was really cool. And said, huh, I'm going to do that someday. And then, you know, someday kind of took a while, but I did get to it. So how, how did you prepare when you, at the beginning, like when you were, you, when you decide on that goal, right, to reach that goal? Like, did you, were you running already? Like, were you running like maybe three miles already? Like 5K, 10K yeah. already? Okay. Yeah, I was already doing 5Ks and stuff. Um, mm. I mean, I do the, uh, the Grant Park 5K every year. Mm. And then um, at some point, maybe five years ago, I joined the track club and started doing a few more 5Ks. Mm. So I was already doing, you know, running three, four, five miles, you know, two, three, four times a week. Mm-hmm. So I, I was already used to running and it was just a matter of, um, I, I found a good uh, marathon training plan on the internet and just mm-hmm. kind of that. Mm-hmm. To, uh, like I took six months to kind of gradually build up my mileage until I could do the full 26. And mm. So how did you feel when you crossed the finish line? Uh, I was both, it felt mentally great and physically terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was tough. Um, like I, I had done the full 26 in one of my training runs. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, you're, you're going slower then and, and all yeah. that. And you're not like traveling. Um, so it was, uh, it was a real struggle to get to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the first 18 miles or so great. I was running sub eight minute miles. Um, I was mm. pace to beat like even my wildest crazy goal time. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was trying to run under three minutes and three hours, 32 minutes, because I thought it'd be really cool if my real marathon time was better than Paul Ryan's fake marathon time. <laughs> really? If you remember, he got caught lying about his yeah. marathon. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was like, I didn't expect to run that fast, but that was kind of my stretch goal and I was on pace to meet it. Um, but after about the 18th mile, my calves and hamstrings just started cramping up real bad. Mm. Um, I think I was dehydrated cause I had flown into the town that day. Yeah. And I had to run around and like get my number and get my Airbnb and do all this stuff. And so mm-hmm. by the time I got to the starting line, my, I already had my Fitbit said I'd already walked 12,000 steps that day. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then I, that was before the marathon. And yeah. I, I had done some hiking earlier in the week because, hey, I'm in Norway. <laughs> and, uh, so it, it, I think I was like dehydrated and my legs were already tired. So yeah. they just crapped out the last eight miles or so. And uh, I was, I went from running 730, 75 miles to just limping in at like 11 minutes a mile for the last eight miles. Oh, wow. After, you know, an hour and a half of that, I was, I was in some pain and I was ready to be done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you, but it's like, 
I came all this way, so I wasn't going to quit. You know. Ah, did, was there any point you feel like I should? Like, I, you feel? Did you? Is there any point that you feel like you will quit? You want to quit? I maybe wanted to. I, I never felt like. Um, I mean, the the one thing where I would have quit is if I thought I was like hurting myself, like yeah, yeah. serious damage. Mm. I feel like it was that. It was it was pain and discomfort, but it wasn't injury. Got you. You yeah. know what I mean? It was just like, well, this sucks, but it's not like I'm running on a, a broken ankle or, or yeah. Something. It's not like I'm pulling a muscle worse than I've already done. It's just you know, yeah, camping because I'm dehydrated and and whatever, and it it sucks, but I'm not like hurting myself by doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you say it took nine years for you to train for it. So what what did you what did you learn from that experience? I learned um, what I, one thing I was surprised about. I thought that the long runs would be just an impossible slog. Yeah, um, but actually. When you when you're running, you know, when you have a 15 mile training run, hmm. it's a really fun way to like explore Atlanta on foot. Hmm. And so if you're gonna run 15 miles. I could run from the front door of my old house and like run to Piedmont Park and then over to Emory and you know see these cool parts of the city. And um, you know, you just set aside half a day to do it, and it, it was kind of a lot of fun. Uh. But I learned it's really tough to get. Um, like the midweek medium runs in. Mm. So trying to fit in an eight mile run on a Wednesday or a Thursday when you've got to work 10 hours mm-hmm. um, or, you know, when you've got to, got to travel for work and, you know, you're, you fly home from somewhere and get home at 8 PM and still need to run that day. Mm. Um, that, that was the real challenging part. And mm. uh, I guess I learned you have to, <clears throat> you have to be a little bit flexible because things are never going to go perfectly, mm-hmm. but you also have to, uh, you have to make, you know, you have to make your long runs because if you don't, you're just not building up your mileage enough and you're, you're not going to make it to the marathon. So mm. I learned you have to build in some flexibility for your schedule. So if mm. you've got like a, a five month training period or a training program, you should probably give yourself six months minor setback or something and yeah you don't want to leave it too tight yeah yeah definitely running something that it, it definitely teaches you that if you don't keep training you know it's yep. very obvious next time you go out yep. for a run right it's not you feel yep. it right away <laughs> yeah yeah and then that's cool yeah and then one thing is that you're talking about and i seeing atlanta a lot more right yeah and that's that's one thing that when I travel to a new place too that's the first thing I like to do I just know yep. well my shoes just go out and for have a run just like to see no CD too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it, it was great. Like, uh, I did one of my, one of my long training runs when I happened to be in San Diego for work. Mm. That was the 15 mile week. Mm. So I had a great run in San Diego and got to see Balboa park mm. to run down by the river. And yeah, it was, it was great. I, nice. I had great runs in the, the cities I went to when I was doing that. I had an nice. awesome run. My last medium training run was, um, I was flying to to Norway through New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I stopped in New York for a day on the way there and had a great run. Like I started from my hotel in downtown Brooklyn and ran over the Brooklyn Bridge Mm. through, um, you know, through downtown Manhattan and over to the High Line. And that it was a beautiful 70 degree day. And uh, it was it was awesome. I I had some runs like that when I was training. So a lot of people and I 
afraid of running because even some of my friends, right? Because uh, yeah. it could cause knee problems. So how, so how do you prevent injury and how do you like prevent like, overuse, overuse of your knees, I guess, or joints, right? So how do you prevent yes. injury basically? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, build up slowly is the main thing. Okay. So don't, you know, if you're used to doing 12 miles a week, don't do 24 the next week. Hmm. You know? You want to get from 12 to 24, then maybe you do 12, then 14, then 16, and, and so forth. Mm. So don't build up too quickly. Um, you know, make sure, give yourself time to stretch after every run. Mm. You know, get a little bit of a warm-up in uh, before you do anything fast. Um, and then just, you know, listen to your body. If, uh, if your joints are, are aching in a bad way, it means maybe you need to cut back or take a break. And Mm. You know, a week off every now and then, yeah. or cut back your mileage. Do an easy week at least once a month. Ah, yeah. Um, do you, what? What do you like about running? Hmm. I mean, I just when I started doing it every day, when I I joined the cross country team my senior mm-hmm. year of school, I really just did it to get better at distance running, so mm-hmm. that I did. Um, and when I did track in spring, I could maybe switch from the the hundred and the 200 to like the 400, maybe mm. I was a sprinter my whole life. And oh. That's what I'm naturally better at. Mm. I was never going to be like the best hundred meter guy at my high school. Cause some guys were just faster. Mm. I thought maybe, well, if I, if I build up my endurance, maybe I can be good at the 400 mm. cross country. And I wasn't very good at it. I was one of the slower people on the team, but for some reason, like, after running every day, even two times a day for like after three weeks or so, I just got to where I loved it. And mm. I can't explain why exactly. It's just like, Oh, really? <laughs> it's, it's still not enjoyable. Like every single time I do it, mm-hmm. but time I, I like it. I don't know. I just, I see. I see. I see. Once I, once I did it as a habit, it became mm. a thing I really enjoyed. No, no reason I asked that because uh, I, in the beginning, I, I really hate running because I feel like it's such a boring thing. You know, why would you run, run and then do nothing, right? And then right. once I start doing it, right, I find it very like, meditative in a way. Like, if I yeah. have a problem, uh, just thinking, right, sometimes I just go out and you know, without music or anything, just like run and think about stuff and look at stuff and then just yeah. like be with yourself in a way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. And I think that's what, uh, I think Osensei came to it the same way. Yeah the secondhand stories I've heard is he, he was yeah. always like, would you just run? But then he, once he tried it, he realized that running is walking meditation or yeah. meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. enjoyed it. And not, you know, I do enjoy a good run and just like spacing out and letting my mind wander. And Yeah. 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 It's almost like martial art in a way, right? One of the reasons I like it is because I feel like it's almost like a movement, like motion, a movement, a meditation in, in motion, right? In movement, some, you know, in a way, right? You move your body, but you also, you know, pre- pre- everything you move, you do, you know, be aware of your body as well. So, so yeah, it's not a meditation to me. So, yeah. So hey, talking about martial arts, I guess. So how, what brought you to martial arts? So it was, uh, it was really just coincidence and circumstance really. So uh. um, when I, when I moved to Atlanta, um, my first day uh, at work at my first real job, was also uh, Sensei Mike Kwan's first day. Oh, yeah. 
And so he and I worked together and, um, you know, one day, you know, maybe a month into working together, he was, uh, he was trying to promote the dojo to some of the, uh, the young folks at work. Mm. And so he told myself and my friend Randeep and a few other guys about the dojo. And um, I was at the time I was living in my uncle's house in, in park and the old dojo was like right around the corner from there. Oh yeah. In the, what is now the King of Pops building. <laughs> and, uh, right on the belt line. It's a great location. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, Oh, that's really close to me. And, and so um, Randeep and I was like, yeah, we'll, we'll give this a try. And so we just came to the dojo on a Thursday night and um, uh, had a, had a good workout uh, thinking like I'm using muscles that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> it, just, it seemed, it seemed like a good holistic workout. Mm. You're not, it's like running. You're kind of just working your endurance and mm. kind of just working strength. But I felt like this karate workout is, you know, I'm getting some strength, some flexibility, some quickness, some stamina, like a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after an hour and a half, I feel, you know, I felt like I got a good workout in and I wasn't even bored yet. So that was pretty cool. Mm. And, um, and then of course it was a Thursday. So we all went to Manuel's Tavern for drinks afterwards. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I think uh, Sensei Bob Ictor was there and told us that it's like, oh, if, you know, you, you'll get to know this, but we're, we're more of a, um, we're a drinking club with a karate problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, martial art is just in the front for the drinking, yeah. right? <laughs> for the party. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was pretty cool. You know, it's like, oh, you know, these, you know, these are some cool guys, you know, it's not just a bunch of nerds doing karate. And, you mm. know, I could get used to this. It's, it's a good workout. It seems like a good group of people. And yeah. later I found out we were just a bunch of nerds, but you know, <laughs> I was kind of hooked. <laughs> yeah. So what's the, was that your first day? First yep. day. Oh wow! Your first day, you went to Mandy as well. Yep. Already. Wow. Nice. That's fast. Yeah, so it was just uh, someone. I think um, Sensei Doug was my first teacher, so he was probably the one who said, "You know, hey guys, we're all usually on Thursday nights. We go to Manuel's Tavern after class. So if you want to join us." And so uh, my friend Rand Randeep and I, we were just like, "Oh yeah, yeah, totally." Mm -hmm. Randeep right. never came back, but he he enjoyed the one class anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Um, but uh, I stuck with it. And, mm. you know, I never saw myself, you know, being a black belt or anything. That was never a goal, mm. uh, you know, not until I was a green belt. And uh, I just kind of like, oh, I enjoyed it. So I kept going and mm. kept showing up a few times a week. And before mm. I, um, I was the sensei. Yeah, that's right. Nice, nice. So what, what do you like about it that keeps, keep you going, keep you studying it? So it's been, it's evolved over the years. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when I first did it, it was just, you know, a good workout. Yeah. Um, but I also found like I was just, I just gotten out of college. And so the whole uh, rank and stripe system and things, you know, it gave me some kind of structure where you're yeah. always actively like working towards the next thing. At mm -hmm. you know, work, it's not really like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously you're, you want to be learning and growing at work too. And, and I was, but it, there wasn't any kind of structure. Like now you get promoted to the next grade or whatever is, <laughs> Oh, you're, you know, you're good at your job. So every now and then you get promoted to some new position or something, but just having a little bit of structure where I could, you know, point to something and see myself making progress mm. was, was great to have. 
um, I was right out of school. Um, and then, you know, I, once I got into it a little bit, I got really into, you know, trying to be better at, at fighting and mm -hmm. the, yeah. the martial of arts aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so they're, you know, Ooh, sparring, that's a lot of fun and yeah. trying to get better, better at all that stuff. And, um, when I got into it a little more, like I, you know, I remember my first, first few months there, I remember looking at the green belts and thinking, wow, like those guys are so good and man, I'm never going to be as good as that. Mm -hmm. um, but then before I knew it, I was one of those guys. Mm -hmm. and then it's like, you know, then I really wanted to keep growing and improving and, and get my brown belt and my black belt. And um, mm. it became, you know, first just a workout, then like, a, I want to be good at fighting kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. And then later it was, um, you know, this has been really great for me. So I wanted to, to teach it to the mm -hmm. next, the next generation of me that came after me, mm -hmm. uh, help everyone, you know, learn the stuff that I learned that I really liked. And, uh, an event, it grew into like, even now it's still, you know, I'm never going to play in the NBA finals. Uh, mm -hmm. so this gives me an outlet for like athletic performance, you know, where I can try to do my best at something and have this craft or the sport that I can just keep getting better at. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's yeah. still, it's different now to me than it was 13 years ago when I started, mm -hmm. but yeah. there's still that, um, you know, in a sense, maybe it's come full circle and it's still, you know, maybe the next rank isn't as important anymore, but it's still like this, this thing I do that I can keep getting better at. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Sounds good. Now I want to go back to your uh, life story a little bit or what, um, what did you, I guess, uh, what brought you to Atlanta? Uh, work basically. Mm -hmm. So I, I graduated in 2006. Yeah. Um, and in architecture, yeah. And, um, I went to the university of Michigan and, um, back then, I mean, it was, it was before the recession, but the building industry was pretty slow in most places. Yeah. It was really slow in Detroit because mm. well, we had a good 10 year head start on the recession. Uh, and so, you know, everyone wanted to go to, you know, New York or, um, or San Francisco or LA or, or one of the big coastal cities. Yeah. Um, but there was uh, a lot of competition for those jobs and the, the building market was pretty slow there too. Um, uh, but at the time the South was still doing a lot of building. So there was a lot of building going on in Charlotte in Atlanta um, and maybe Florida to some extent. Um, and so there, there were a lot of jobs in Atlanta and um, my uncle lives here. Uh, we were, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner and he's like, and I was, you know, struggling trying to find a real job. Mm. And he's like, well, you know, come down to Atlanta. I know there's a lot of building going on and yeah. And, uh, interview at some places, see where it goes. And, um, uh, sure enough, uh, my the same friend, Randeep, he and I went to architecture school together at Michigan. Um, he had found a job here through the AIA, the American Institute of Architects website. Mm. Um, and so he was at this, this firm and they had more work than they knew what to do with. <laughs> he told me, Hey, you know, we're, we need people, you know, come on down, and he set me up with an interview with his boss. Mm. And um, so I came down, stayed at my uncle's place in Inman Park and just fell in love with the neighborhood. Um, it's a really cool place. Like yeah. 
I'd never thought of Atlanta before. Mm. Um, it's, you know, just some other, some. Other place, another city. <laughs> some city that, yeah, I, I know it exists, but it, mm. you know, it's not New York. It's not San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but when I came here, I really liked it. I, I thought Inman Park was great. And, you know, my interview went, went well. I didn't feel like I was on the spot. I felt like they were like giving me a recruiting pitch. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, you know, the firm seemed pretty cool. So when they offered, I accepted and, and moved, uh, moved down and um, met Mike Kwan and he introduced me to Dojo and, and the rest. Right. Yeah. So what, what did you, what did you grow up? I grew up in Michigan. Um, uh. I was in Detroit. Mm. And then when I was about five years old, um, my parents moved us to a suburb of Lansing mm. Um, and so I grew up there, um, lived there until I went to college and I went to the university of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Mm. And then after I graduated, I moved back to Detroit for, you know, a few months while I was trying to find a real job. Mm. Then I moved to Atlanta. Since you're growing up in Michigan. So what's your favorite memory growing up in Michigan? Well, I really liked, um, I loved going to the lakes. I mean, that was that's a Michigan specific thing. Um, mm. The beach at Lake Michigan was just always the best. Mm. Uh, it's got, you know, the lakes are so big that you feel like you're at the ocean. Mm. Um, and on a, a day with a little bit of wind, they even have the wave. You can get some good five foot waves going. Mm. And, um, you know, the whole Michigan coastline is all sand dunes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really pretty. You know, there's the dunes and the dune grass and the, the forests just behind the dunes. Um, so you can kind of st stand on top of the dune and get this great view out over the lake. Mm. It's, um, it's fresh water. So, you know, you don't get salt in your eyes and there's no jellyfish or anything. Mm -hmm. um, it was just really beautiful and, and peaceful. And, um, you know, like, I guess like nowhere else on earth and mm. it was a, a treat to, to go there. Yeah. Do you, what, what? Any, any number of beaches all, all up and down the Michigan coast. Ah. If you could give a credit or thanks to uh, one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? I would probably, I'd say my dad. Mm. And, you know, both he and my mom, and I've had any number of influential family members. Um, but in, in addition to all the usual things, you know, my dad was always, you know, my mom got to be the cool parent and my dad had <laughs> responsible parent. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, he did, he did a lot of the thankless things. And mm -hmm. I know he, uh, he sacrificed a lot um, for, for my sister and I. Mm. So um, yeah. In, in addition to all the usual things, he, yeah. He what, is the, what is the, what is one of the thankless things that you appreciate? Um, you know, whenever, I mean, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but whenever, you know, we needed to be disciplined for whatever reason, mm. it was fairly frequent because I was a mischievous child. <laughs> but, you know, my dad was the one to do that. Um, and I think he, I mean, that both my parents did, you know, they went to the parent teacher conferences and stuff, but mm -hmm. my dad did a lot of that. And then he, um, he worked a job that he didn't like for, mm a lot of years, mm. you know. What's the one of the most mysterious thing you have ever done? Probably, I would say, 
Uh, so the time that we were, well, we would play with illegal fireworks a lot. Mm-hmm. So like we, my uncle from Atlanta would, when he came for Christmas, he would stop in Tennessee and get the good fireworks. Uh. <laughs> the kind of stuff that you can't get in Michigan. Ah, nice. Once we were old enough to drive, mm. um, go down to Indiana and get, you know, at least better fireworks than you can get in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And there, there was one time when we, we got all of our fireworks and we went down to the schoolyard and just were, you know, shooting off fireworks. Yeah. Someone called the cops. <laughs> <laughs> and? And, uh, and so um, we just, uh, we kind of left our bucket of fireworks there and ran into the woods and the, uh. the chased after us. What? Is this in a cop chase after you guys? Yep. Oh, wow. So, so the cops chased after us, but we, we ran on foot mm. and we into the woods because we knew those woods better than they did. Uh. And, uh, you know, we were, we were all on the cross country team. So we yeah, were, exactly. I mean, that's what I'm going to say. You were runners. <laughs> so we were, we were faster than them. And, uh, so yeah, we, we ran away from the cops and, uh, we managed not to get caught. Uh. <clears throat> so he, so he remained a cold case in a way. It is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The all great, right. The great Okemos, Michigan police chase on foot of 1999. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should cut this part out. <laughs> In case they can for you. <laughs> so, all right. Um, what was the one thing that you were afraid, very afraid of doing, but you did it anyway? I think um, I would say it's not one thing, but mm. you know, anytime I had to ask a girl out. Mm. That was always terrifying, and I was afraid of it. Mm. But um, unlike some of my nerdy high school friends, I I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of have to. But um, mm. I think I was always the things I were afraid of were you know failure and rejection and, and mm. that stuff. Um, so that was a real difficult thing for me, especially when I was younger. Mm. Um, um, yeah, I mean. I can totally relate because I think I have similar problem too. Yeah. So how did you, how, I guess, how did you do it? Right. Did you just like say, Hey, you know, just, just go for it. Or did you like, what's no self-talk or what's no strategy? How did you, how did you conquer that fear? Yeah. So, I, you know, I won't say I ever fully conquered it. But when I was younger, I would, um, I, I kind of, didn't really ask anyone out unless I knew it was a sure thing. Mm. Just, you know, if it was really, ob- if, if there was someone I liked and it was really obvious that, that she liked me too, then, mm. then you know, mm-hmm. make a move or something, you know, ask, ask her out. Yeah. But it was only, you know, later as I got older and more mature, it's like, mm. well, what's, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, someone yeah. know, and then, Hey, at least, you know, and you can, mm-hmm. you can on, um, and, uh, and try the next one, but, mm. uh, managed that risk or manage that fear, manage that risk by, uh, real, not really taking chances. Mm. But, um, but when a sure thing came along that then, you know, I would, I would go for that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, like I said, I just got, you know, I kind of got, I helped myself get over it just by rationalizing it, uh. you know, what, what's the worst thing that could happen is someone says yeah. no and then, well, that sucks, but okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, did you do anything to besides, I guess, 
rationalizing and getting old, like getting older. Did you do anything to actively to like, help yourself or no? Or you just mm, a little bit? I mean, I would um, I would try to get intel from my friends and stuff. Oh, okay. Try right. to figure out without being direct about it if uh, one might like me. And okay, okay, good, good. I'm asking this for myself. I want some stories <laughs> from you. So that's why I'm asking these questions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I can help myself as well. So, all right, nice. So, yeah, I think I would say fear of rejection is one of the most, anything you do, right? It, can, it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't have to be just for, you know, uh, ask someone out. It could be something right. for you, right? And then, oh, sure. yeah, and I just talking to strangers as well. And the fear yep. is always there. So, yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's always, it's not natural for me to be the person initiating a conversation in some mm-hmm. kind of social setting. Yeah, yeah. You know, networking at work and, you know, meeting new people, mm-hmm. at, um, meeting new people at a running club or, or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, I have to be really mindful about like tell myself going in, it's like, okay, you know, everyone else is just as nervous as you are. So just go up and talk to them. And if you make an ass of yourself, well, who gives a shit? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's stranger anyway. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. I would say one thing that Sami Shu actually helps with that is like whenever I I just noticed right now, like whenever, like whenever there's new members coming in, right. We, in the existing members, we usually, you know, set an example of, hey, introduce yourself to the newer members, right? To basically, you know, you talk to the the new strangers, but you are actually taking the initiative to talk to the new member. I think that actually helped me as well, just to talking to people as well. Yeah. 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 And me as well. I mean, I, I didn't, like when I first started at the dojo, I didn't feel I had to take the initiative because everyone was so nice and you know they all come up and introduce themselves to me and mm-hmm. asked me how I was doing and yeah know, yeah made me feel right at home yeah 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 so all right have you ever felt that you were lost in life I mean you were still very young so I'm not sure if you have felt that yeah. before <laughs> no I, I definitely have I mean in, in some sense I feel like I'm kind of lost most of the time but I'm just sort mm-hmm. of a with it because it's you know you saw sort of work i'm sorry just sort of okay with it okay you know i'm okay with being lost and make more of an adventure right Mm. i think when i when i graduated from college i was when i felt the most lost Mm. um and it was it was a couple things so uh right after graduation or technically before i i delayed my graduation so i could do this but i had a uh i did a study abroad in china Oh, so I was in, I spent the summer after graduation, um, for, for three months in Beijing and Shanghai and in the Pearl River Delta, mm-hmm. um, which was a great experience, but it was also, um, really, uh, I never felt like more alone than mm-hmm. when I was, you know, a million miles away from home and, uh, like all my, well, there's another question that I think you might ask that might tailor back to this. Mm. When I came, when I came back from China and like all my friends were gone, you know, no one was left in Ann Arbor anymore. Mm-hmm. Everybody either moved back to where they were from originally or moved to New York or Chicago or wherever. Um, and like everyone was gone and it was not easy finding a good job in architecture at the time. So mm-hmm. it took me a while. 
Um, and I, so I, I moved back in with my mom in Detroit and, and worked with her just painting houses and just kind of being a hipster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so like, you know, everyone that I knew from my life before was gone and I didn't know what I was going to do oh, next, uh, where I was going to end up. Um, and that was, that was definitely the, the time I felt the most lost. So how did you, how did you find yourself again? How did you go through that period? So that was, um, well, you know, by uh, um, kind of as luck would have it, mm. reconnected with my, my friend Randeep from mm. architecture school, ah, okay. set me up with the interview in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of lost, not knowing where I was going to end up. And, mm-hmm. But then this, this opportunity came up and I took it and uh, I ended up here. Mm. And then um, started at the dojo and um, what? Got into, you know, the dojo gave me a little bit more direction. So uh. I was kind of lost, but then, you know, at least for this small part of my life, I have, I know what the roadmap is, you know, mm. structure. Yeah. Yeah. Structure. I can go get my one green stripe and my two green stripes. And, uh. um, and then eventually, you know, the, at, two, at one green, you learn the five D's of a winner. Mm-hmm. First one is direction. Yeah. And, uh, that's what I, my, my first public speaking when I was a, a green belt was about this exact scenario. Ah. was directionless and lost. Um, and then, then I, I found Kung Nu and it, it gave me this little nugget of direction and, and mm-hmm. really helpful for me at the time. Mm, I see. So but that's my favorite philosophy, incidentally, is the oh, nice. P's and also the five P's. They're, they're very similar. Mm-hmm. So going back to your lost period in a way. Yeah. So how, what, what's the, I guess, what did you learn from that experience at that time? If you look back now, what did you learn from that experience? That's a good question. Um, what did I learn from that? So the reason I'm asking, because I'm personally, I'm in that kind of period already right now, right? Searching for jobs, right? And right. also I don't really know what I want to do as well, yeah. right? And then I try to, and then kind of lost in a way and also worry about, okay, am I gonna make ends meet, right? You know, am I gonna, you know, actually find a job, you know, have some paycheck, have some income, you know, stuff like yeah. that. Anyway, so that's, that's why I want, yeah. yeah. I think in hindsight, it would have helped to have a mentor. Mm. I'm because, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but having someone like, um, like my first boss at my current firm mm. to give me some ideas and stuff mm. um, and to kind of force me into be, being mindful about it. I and mean, you're, you're never going to know like exactly what you want to do, but mm. have one who's been there before um, in, in your field or, or even if not, who can give you ideas. Well, you know, you could do this, this or this, like which one of these three things appeals the most to you. Mm. And okay, if you like thing number or thing B, uh, well, here's some things you can be doing right now to kind of put yourself um, on that path. So, mm. kind of in the absence of any self direction, mm. it would be nice to have you know uh, some more experienced person mm. give me advice on how to find that direction. Mm. Okay. Okay. So yeah, just. Yeah, that's that's problem. The reason I'm doing podcasts, and this part just yeah. ask people that hey, you know, <laughs> advice, you know, from what you learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would say, is, is that your looking back? That's the lesson that you 
that you learn, I guess, is that to have a mentor in your life? Yeah, I think mm. that would be a, and I, I didn't learn that lesson at that time, but, but in mm. hindsight, that's probably what I needed at that point that I didn't have. Mm, I see, I see. Nice. All right. Now I cannot. So you mentioned China. So why did you choose China? Right. I, I, it's up, it's, I have to ask, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so there were several options um, for, uh, so the architecture program had several study abroad possibilities for that year. Yeah. There was one in China and there was one in India, Ghana, and there was one in Switzerland mm. and there was one in Brazil. And um, it was 2006, so mm -hmm. uh, China was gearing up for the 2008 Olympics. Oh yeah, and there was there was just a lot of really cool architecture. I mean, there was a lot of building in general, and a lot of cool, edgy architecture going on there at the mm -hmm. time. That you know, more than anywhere else, and yeah. so kind of where where I wanted to go. Mm. No, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So what what did you do in China? Uh, I basically did a semester of design studio. Oh, okay. So are, are you from Beijing or? Fujian province, but Fujian? yeah. Are you familiar with Beijing? A little bit, yeah. And then the Forbidden yeah. City, you know, all this stuff. I haven't been, but I know the Great Walls and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, you know, our, our studio was just, it was a design project that was all about. And um, our, we stayed at this hotel in, in the Hutongs near the Forbidden City. Yeah. So we were staying in kind of old China and then our studio space that we commuted to every day was in this, um, this old industrial area that was being gentrified into an arts district. Mm. Um, and so if you know, Ai Weiwei, um, mm, yeah. but he was one of our guest lecturers. Oh, really? Wow. He came and gave a lecture to us. <clears throat> oh, wow. Did you talk to him afterwards? <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? So talk to him. Yeah. A little bit. Um, and oh. one of, uh, one of the students in my group ended up like taking an apprenticeship with him. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, staying in, in his workshop. And so it, one of our classes was we would go, um, we would go from studio to studio for all these big shot Chinese artists, Ai Weiwei, uh, the Gallup brothers, um, and, and there were a few others. Um, and, you know, just talk to them about what they do and, you know, how that impacts the design world and stuff. What did Ai Weiwei talk about in your, the lecture for you guys? Uh, he talked about... Um, how he said a lot of provocative things about how architecture is not real art, <laughs> and, okay. uh, which was funny because like it, he designed his own studio space mm -hmm. and it was the best, you know, it was the best one out of any of them. So like, he was a good architect in addition to being a good artist. Yeah. Did he, did he not, did he not know that you guys are architecture students? I think he was trying to be provocative. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nice. I like him already. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, yeah, so he, he was really cool. Um, and uh, so our, our, our studio projects were a, in some way, shape or form about this uh, renewal, the renewal of this old industrial area into a space for artists. Hmm. And we all, you know, everyone's project took on that topic a little bit differently and it was all way too open-ended for what it should have been for a bunch of uh, I mean, well, it, it was supposed to be a grad level course. So even though we were undergrads, some of us, um, I guess it was kind of appropriate, but uh, mm. I digress. Um, and so we, you know, we all had a design project at the end of it. Um, 
had the these classes about um, with Chinese artists and other stuff. Uh, we met the Gao brothers, and um, I ended up dating the their gallery assistant. Oh wow! All yeah. right, nice. <laughs> um, so, what did you gain from that uh, the China experience? Um, I it was just a uh, it was certainly a different way of doing things. Mm. So, you know, we learned about, about Chinese culture. You know, we got to see how, how the city functions, um, mm. Beijing, how, like, you know, how Beijing is different from an American city. Yeah. And, um, you know, we got to see how with their more planned economic system, they did things like we toured this really great set of buildings. It was an entire like university campus mm -hmm. built without having a use for it. Mm -hmm. But it was like, well, you know, the, this country is growing by leaps and bounds. We don't know what this is for yet, but we know we're going to need it. So we'll build it and then figure out what to do with it later. Mm -hmm. Kind of thing would never happen in the U.S. where, you know, everything's more, happens more organically. And, and there, there isn't that much planning and thinking ahead. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, it gave me, uh, I mean, it was so different than anywhere else I'd ever been that it really, you know, it really broadened my horizons and yeah. the little world I grew up in is definitely not the way the whole world works. Sounds yeah. like you were having fun, a lot of fun in China, right? You're having a girlfriend, you're doing a lot of other stuff. You're probably going many places, <laughs> a lot of new places in China. So when yeah. you came back, now you were, now you were lost, right? You mentioned you were lost after, after that, right? Yeah. So how, I guess, uh, how, how does that happen from transition, having so much fun experience like, and then coming back and then you feel lost? Um, yeah. I, I'm not sure if there's anything there. I'm just want to see yeah. if you have any thoughts on that. Well, it was, um, I kind of felt lost twice because uh, mm -hmm. going to China, it was like right after graduation. So it's like uh, that when, you know, you're, you're wrapping up with school and so schoolwork isn't too hard and uh, it's, the people you've bonded with over the last four years, um, every, you know, everyone's just kind of celebrating mm. and like you're with all your best friends that you've built up over the years and it's all graduation parties and, and fun stuff and celebrations. And it's just kind of, a, you know, a, a great community and a, and a great time. And then, um, and I was actually, um, I was seeing someone before I went to China Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a girlfriend that we, we just started dating a few months before graduation. Mm. And we, um, we, you know, we decided not to, you know, to just go our separate ways once we graduated. Um, but so I had a, a girlfriend and all, all of my friends and all this great time in Ann Arbor. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I leave all that one day and go like halfway around the world to somewhere. Yeah. I'm a million miles from, I, I had a, a couple of my friends from architecture school were there, but not like close friends or anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm leaving this great place behind and, um, uh, you know, a, a relationship that was just in its beginning phases. So you're still, you know, infatuated and, and head over for, for the person. And so it was really, really difficult to leave all that behind and go somewhere completely new. Yeah. And, um, you know, the first, few weeks I was there it was just like the most crushingly like lonely and sad uh, 
ever been because of what I just left. And but then, you know, eventually, I mean, I was in this cool place and learning and seeing new things and it was exciting. And, you know, I started to make friends with, you know, the other people in the program yeah. and um, I met, uh, I met Shawnee, mm-hmm. the, the girl I dated there. And so, you know, I built this little life mm-hmm. um, there in China and then had to come back again. And, oh yeah. And, and at first it's like, you know, I was going to miss my friends that I made in China, um, obviously, but um, I was going to miss them, but I was looking forward to going back to, to Michigan, yeah. how great it was when I left. Yeah. I came home. It was like the place that was there was all entirely gone because yeah. just gone their separate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, you know, like this, this world you've built up for yourself over four years. Um, and you know, you, you leave like right when it's the most fun part because you don't have to worry about school anymore and it's all parties. Mm. And then, um, kind of starting over in a new place. And then, you know, right when you get a little something going there, that gets cut off and you come home and yeah. home isn't what it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. It was very disorienting. I can see that. Cause uh, I feel like something I can do is like life is kind of about human connections. Right? right. And then once you make those connections and then, and then you lose it in your way, and that can be very, very disorient, disorienting, as you say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So I was, I was lost when I got to China and then I found myself a little bit and then I was completely fucking lost when I, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I would like, even three months later, I would wake up and not know where I was. Oh, wow. You know how you get that when you come back from a trip, you know, maybe for a day or two, but. Mm. Wow. I would wake up and it's like, Am I in Ann Arbor? Am I in Beijing? Am I in Shanghai? Am oh, really? I, am I in Lansing? Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, I'm in Detroit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, last question about architecture. I want to know, like, how does, how does architects think, right? And how, I guess, how can we learn from how, how architects think? I'm not sure if it would be I'm assuming it's very useful, but I just want to curious about how architects think and how can we, you know, maybe like learn from from that. Yeah. Well, that's hard to describe, but uh, to simplify it as best I can, and architects are always thinking about um, thinking about space. Like, mm. how is this space going to be used? Mm. We were designing the new dojo. Um, we had several architects in the dojo. Uh, mm-hmm. Myself, Alan, Master Alan, uh, Mike Kwan, uh, Tom Ingram. We were, you know, we knew the space we were renting and we were trying to figure out like how to lay out the dojo, where to put the bathrooms and the locker rooms and the entry and all that. Mm-hmm. So we, you, you have this kind of blank rectangle with some givens, like, you know, these windows are here and this door is here and so forth. How are people going to use the space? What is the traffic flow through here going to be? And how can we arrange things to be sort of most easy and convenient and pleasing mm. plus who are, who are going to occupy the space? Mm. And then, you know, so you, you kind of think of that stuff first, like how is it going to be used? And, you know, how does that drive where we put the bathroom and the locker room and whatever? And then, how do you want to feel when you're in the space and how does that 
drive things like um, like what the finishes are going to be, what color to paint the walls, mm. or the floor is wood or concrete or carpet or or you know that wrestling that stuff. The, gotcha. You know, yeah. How do we want the space to feel, and then what finishes do we pick to help it feel that way? And, mm. um, and then you know then you have to think then you have to put your lawyer hat on and how do we make all this stuff be code compliant? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, how do we get it through permitting and yeah. that part of it too? And there's a, a bit of an engineering side, yeah. water out of it, which because you know, we just renovated an existing building. Wasn't that big of a thing, but you always have to be thinking about how to keep water out of the building mm. an architect. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's important. <laughs> what well, is there any, key design like architecture principles that you follow that you think might be useful for everybody to know every day yeah i mean there there's any number of them um you know it can be i have a whole book called what i learned in architecture school that (laughs) kind of the design side into you know down into little digestible bites and one of them is like use reward and deny. So if you're mm. designing the road that goes up to a house, don't just go straight, mm. you know, have it, have it so the road is pointed at these trees and then it has to go around them and then back around so you can see where you're going, but then it disappears from view and then you see it again. Um, you know, that, that can make the experience rewarding once you get there. Oh, mm. the principle is called what? Reward and? Re- reward and deny. Reward and deny. Oh, wow. That's, that, that's, that's just one example of one of these things. You show or, you, you, you show you the reward a little bit and then deny it and then show you again. <laughs> or use, um, use contrast to your advantage. So if you want a, a certain space to feel very big and grand and spacious, mm. make people walk through something tiny and cramped and sad before they get there. And then uh, opens up into the big happy space. Then you're like, oh, wow, this is nice. Oh, uh, that sounds like so that sounds like a strategy that real realtors use. And they show you a very crappy house yep. first, yeah. and then they show you something very nice later, so you have more <laughs> to get you to buy it. Yeah, and then oh. there's um, you know things like for keeping water the, the keeping water out of building side. There's a don't be a dope. Make sure your roof has slope. Oh, nice. And uh, mm. save cash and flash. So Steak. Flashing is like sheet metal that you use to, you know, wrap around window openings and stuff to keep mm-hmm. water. And there's little little things like that um, mm-hmm. for just the more construction side of things. All right, cool. What is the best lesson they have learned from someone or something? Best lesson. Um, so this one is uh, back in. This one really helped me with my interpersonal relationships. Mm. Back in 2004 or something when I was in college, and people would communicate with each other through instant messenger away messages. Yeah. And uh, one of my friends from high school who I you know, kept in touch with, I chatted with her every now and then, uh, she had an away message that said, don't make someone a priority if they only make you an option. Mm. And uh, so that was like, you know, at the time I was having frustrations with, you know, some of my friends in college who I felt weren't, you know, putting the effort into the friendship that that I was. And 
And then this little, this saying said, you know, kind of taught me, don't be mad about it. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, if, if they, you know, if, uh, if this person doesn't want to put in the effort, then that's okay. Just find someone who does, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty nice. Yeah. So it's, it's a minor little thing, but it was just, it was something that I needed to hear at that time. And so I always kind of remembered it. Mm, yeah. That's very wise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Useful philosophy. Yeah. 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 Any other similar philosophy you live by? Hmm. Well, I live uh, by the philosophy. So I don't know if you've heard of uh, the Dudist religion. No. Uh, basically, it's a fake religion that's around the uh, <laughs> the philosophy of Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski, the uh, oh yeah character from um, from the Big Lebowski. Yeah, I haven't well, seen it, but yeah, it, it's good. It's it's a classic, definitely right. a, a seeing. But uh, I take it a step further, and um, I believe in the Tao of Sheed. Sheed is Rashid Wallace, who is a, a great basketball player for the Detroit Pistons. Okay. And uh, he had some philosophical sayings um, among them. One is ball don't lie. Ball don't lie. Okay. Ball don't lie. And then uh, another one was uh, both teams play hard. Uh -huh. So whenever, you know, some announcer would ask some stupid question uh, about why one team won or the other, um, he would just, he would respond with a smart ass answer, which is both team play hard, my man, both team play hard. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how does bald down lie help like living your life in a way? Like well, it's kind of like, so one of the other things Rashid Wallace said was it is what it is. It did what it do. Mm. That's just like things are going to be the way they're going to be. And uh, you just kind of have to accept it. And, uh, mm. okay. uh, and ball don't lie is the same way. Like in, uh, in Kung Nu, we have the saying that boards are truth. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in, in basketball, um, you could think something's a bad shot, but if it goes in, it's not a bad shot because the ball. Mm -hmm. doesn't fly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's sense. kind of, you know, the, the rules of the universe are what they are. And, uh, ah, okay. Life. Ah, okay. Yeah. Nice. So I, I like that. What is the saddest moment of your life? Uh, I think the, the saddest moment of my life was, it was like I was talking about before, you know, when I left Ann Arbor and I was leaving kind of like a, a perfect moment in time. Mm -hmm. and then I was just like completely all by myself, you know, completely out of my own and away from all my friends and, and family. Yeah. Um, that was a, a really difficult and lonely time. I mean, lucky I've not had to deal with, major tragedies in my life. I mean, obviously everyone's had losses. Yeah. I've lost a parent or lost a sibling or anything like that. Um, you know, when my grandparents died, you know, and it was, it was sad, of course, but it, it wasn't tragic. You know, they were in their eighties or nineties. Yeah. You know? I'm fortunate to have never had like a tragic loss or anything. Mm. Um, That's good. I think that that time when um, I just felt the most alone that I've ever been. Mm talked about before that was probably the saddest time yeah yeah it was and, like it should have been an exciting time but it was sad and lonely at the same time yeah yeah so i get that sounds like so what have 
I guess what are you right now, like looking at from that experience, like what are you doing to make sure that you are not alone anymore? Or maybe to, I guess, what was the lesson that you learned from that experience that you are applying right now to make sure that you won't be lost like that again? Um, I'm not sure if you do do that consciously or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to do consciously, but it's, yeah. um, it did teach me like how important uh, relationships are. Yeah. And, family and friends and, um, and romantic relationships. So, you know, uh, take care of those, which I'm not always good at, you know, <laughs> yeah. I can be bad at maintaining friendships. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but um, but it, it did teach me the importance of that. And I, I at least, you know, I try to make an effort to, uh, you know, keep up with my college friends on zoom. Um, mm. The pandemic's actually helped in that regard. It, it, oh yeah that mm. um and um yeah don't don't take your your friends and your family for granted because yeah have you heard on the top five regrets of the dying you have I, i've heard of it but i don't know what they are oh one of them is i wish i wish that i have kept up with my not kept in touch with my friends that's one yeah. of the top five yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all right so what, um, talking about sad moments, what, what's the happiest moment in your life? Happiest moment? Oh, well, I've had a number of those recently. Mm, yeah. I mean, you know, any number of happy moments, anytime I'm, you know, it, it's trivial, but anytime I'm like, you know, at the beach and mm-hmm. in the ocean and it's a perfect day outside and stuff like that. But aside from just being happy in the moment, because the moment is perfect. Yeah. I think, um, when I when I asked Fumi to marry me, mm. was, that was right up there. And right. then when when she told me that uh, that she was pregnant, mm-hmm. you were expecting like in that exact moment, mm. it, it, I wasn't super happy because she interrupted me in the middle of a nap. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> but once I was like back to being awake and stuff, uh, mm. that was really happy and exciting. Um, nice, nice. Just That's thinking about that. And yeah. um, that, uh, I mean, the, the moment right before graduation went that I've been talking about this whole time, mm. um, you know, when everyone was like, you know, everyone's just best friends and everything's a party and a celebration. That, that was a pretty great time. Also, mm. Nice. That's good. That's good. Small moments and other important moments as well. Yeah. yeah. Nice. We wish you more moments like that to come. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully those yeah. are in store. Things yeah. certainly are looking good now. So. Yeah. Nice. Nice. That's good. I have a, a lot to be happy about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess, I guess I should say something about, you know, when I got my black belt. And... <laughs> yeah. <of course. laughs> I mean, that, that was a pretty great moment. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm why. Uh, yeah. Nice. I like remember a lot of work page. and it was, it was almost like though I couldn't believe it was finally happening. And so it, that took a minute to sink in and it, as great as it was in the moment to like have my black belt and be, you know, just mobbed by like the whole dojo and yeah. everyone happy for you. Mm-hmm. That was great, obviously, but it, I don't, it was also a little bit surreal. Like I couldn't believe it was, it was mm. really happening. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, so speaking of the dojo now, what's your favorite Samin Shu? Do you have a favorite like, Samin Shu story? In a way, mm. 
I'm not sure. If I if mm. I think we can come back to that. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I, do, I just I can't think of it think of it off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I mean, the there's always the there's always the time that Sensei Mark Gowan brought a, a bottle of red wine into the Charlotte YMCA and dropped it and like because you're not allowed to bring alcohol into the Y. Yeah. But Mark had brought this bottle of red wine for later, and then he it fell out of his bag and like crashed and splashed all over the floor, and so then he got kicked out. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> wow. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Wow, man. Oh man, I, mean, I hope I hope that wine is not like you know not found in 1800s or something. <laughs> I don't think it was. Any, I'm sure it was a perfectly decent bottle. I don't think it was anything that fancy. It's just like. Sensei Mark Gowan of all people getting kicked yeah. out by MCA of all places. Yeah, he's the nicest person you know, right? Right. right. <laughs> if if that's not the most Sungming Shu thing that's ever happened, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. That's good. That's good. That's a good story, actually. <laughs> all right. Um, who's the most influential person in your life? The most influential. Hmm. Um. I mean, I think, you know, just straight up most influential, not like most unexpectedly influential or whatever. I think I'll it'd probably have to be my dad. Mm. How did he, how did he influence you? Uh, he always, uh, he raised both me and my sister to, you know, think for ourselves and use, use critical thinking and take everything with a grain of salt. Um, mm. So, you know, he, in his own way, taught us not to worry too much. Mm. Uh, he, um, he had a great um, philosophy and, and policy when I was growing up where um, there were basically two rules. And uh, one was get good grades. And the other was don't drive drunk. Get good grades. Don't drive drunk. Yeah. yeah. That's good. And, he, and he, he backed that up. You know, he would... Uh, the only thing I ever got truly in trouble for was for, uh, you know, getting a C in some bullshit class that I should have easily been getting an A in. Mm. You know, he wouldn't yell at you for getting into a little bit of trouble here mm. or, there or uh, you know, even when, uh, when he caught me red handed um, throwing up on New Year's Eve when I was 18. Yeah. Didn't yell or anything. Um, just uh. like, oh, feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> uh. But he, he was you know, very clear about, uh, you know, I know you're going to do stuff and I know you're going to have fun. Mm. The love of God, don't get behind the wheel. And yeah. he, he said, um, he had a policy that if you ever need a ride home, mm -hmm. I don't care where you are, what time it is, any of that, call me and I will come pick you up. No questions asked. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so it was very, you know, he, he meant it and he was willing to do his part to, you know, make it easy for us to not violate one rule, which is a good rule to have, you know? Yeah. Just now you say uh, two rules, right? Don't drive drunk and then get good grades. Yep. Yeah. And how much are you going to emulate your dad when you, when you become a father and how much you can, yeah, I mean, I think I'll, uh, I'll keep those two rules for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, that's uh, the only way I know how to be a dad is what I saw him do. So I'm sure whether mm -hmm. I want to or not, I'm going to do a lot of the same stuff. Nice. 
and the policies, yeah, yeah, the philosophies. And, and I'll, you know, try not to be too strict or anything, but, you know, emphasize the things that really matter. Yeah. How did he teach you critical thinking? You mentioned that earlier. Uh, he was, you know, just always, um, you know, even if the guy on the news said something, mm-hmm. he, w- he would point out the logic, logical flaws in it. Or oh. if some guy was just being a shameless partisan hack, Mm. Now that's just this guy's opinion. Mm. These are the facts, and then some other people have this other opinion. And, oh wow! Um, or every now and then, you know, oh, here, here I'm going to say something controversial, but mm. some Republican jackoff would get out, get up, and spout some bullshit, and my dad would just say bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's very good because I think personally, I feel like I'm very gullible in a way like whatever i see on tv like even fox news i i watch fox news sometimes oh when they say actually makes sense and then i watch nbc and then oh when they say makes sense too so you know i just feel like oh i'm i'm always very gullible i don't really apply a lot of maybe critical enough critical thinking to it so yeah i think he always taught us to think about the motivation of the person Mm -hmm. um, the person talking so you know, does that person have an agenda and how might that affect what they're saying? You know, are they going to, if this person's on this side, you know, they they might be pushing a uh, a version of the facts that's most favorable to them and Mm. you not be getting the whole story from that person. Yeah. Never getting the full story from any one person because, Mm. you know, that's just not possible. Yeah. So I think, I feel like I touched on this question already. I'm not sure if you you don't have to, if you don't, um, if you feel it's bad, you don't need to answer it, but what is the best lesson that your father taught you? Mm-hmm. I think the, the um, let's see, I'm trying to think of a simple and straightforward way to say it, but yeah. you know, he, he taught me to, you know, be nice and be polite. Mm-hmm. But don't let um, and he, he always, uh, demonstrated this, you know, don't let falsehoods go, uh, unchecked. Like if someone is just, you know, my dad would always be the first person to uh, stand up for what's right. Like he wouldn't let fear of a little bit of discomfort, um, stop him from saying the right thing. Mm-hmm. Like if, um, uh, one time at a, at a, a family event, uh, I had a crazy uncle who, who was going on about how like Obama was some kind of fascist and mm. he was left wing dictator type ever and blah, 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 blah. And my dad's like, my dad and everyone else was just kind of being polite and like, okay. Mm. And my dad's like, no, you're just wrong. That's not remotely true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and if, um, if, if you ever saw someone saying, something racist or, or anything like that, he wouldn't let discomfort, he, he would, he would call, a, call a person out on that. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I can see that it might be hard to do sometimes when you're just, it's not my natural inclination to be yeah. like outspoken and, and rock the boat, but. Um, Confrontational, right? Uh, sometimes, right. I mean, personally, I, I have a trouble of, uh, and it's like very hard time to avoid, try to avoid conflicts, right? right? It's, Sometimes when you are in your, in, in surrounded by other people, you might tend to, you know, go in the flow a little bit, right? So, right. 
Yeah. And he was always, you know, he wasn't going to be rude and he wasn't going to pick a fight for no reason. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. But, <laughs> but if, if something needed to be said, he wasn't going to let uh, going with the flow or, or the sense of politeness stop him from uh, saying anything. Nice, nice. Yeah. Did you so say, I hope, I hope that I can live up to that. Yeah. But it's, it's something that he showed me how to do that I would like to uh, carry on for myself. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's good, actually. That's the best way to teach, I guess. He teaches you by, yeah. by his through his actions instead of just yep. words. Yeah. So, uh, last three questions. I want to go back to summing you a little bit. So, what's the biggest difference that you've seen between you before martial art and after martial art? Um, I think I'm more calm and more confident. Mm. But, um, you know, having martial arts and just having sort of really any kind of craft, if you will, yeah. where you gradually build up um, and get better at something over time, mm -hmm. improve your sense of value. Just, you know, knowing I'm good at this thing mm. um, can be a really, really powerful tool to, you know, help build your own confidence and, mm -hmm. um, you know, build your, your self-worth. So I would say, and it, it's also, you know, as a, it's a good workout. So it, it keeps you healthy. And, um, you know, that's always having a healthy body is always good. You know, it's not the only thing, but it's, it's a good thing to have a help you have a healthy mind. Um, mm. so having this part of my life where I can, you know, get a good sweat in and, you know, maybe by exercising a lot, work out some frustrations, but also be getting better at the same time. It's, it's helped me. A more a calmer, more collected, and more confident person, even mm -hmm. when I'm not doing it. Nice, calmer and more confident. That's good. Mm -hmm. uh, last two questions: What's if you can put a word or message outside the dojo window for people driving by? What would, that, what would you? What would it be? You mean? Uh, well, I think I would put a drinking club with a karate problem. Oh, nice. nice. We'll get just the kind of people we want to join the dojo. <laughs> nice, nice. And what, what, what kind of people is that? How would you describe that kind of person? Like, that kind you know, of uh, party people, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess to be a, to give you something uh, more serious, mm -hmm. you know, maybe just a one word like community. Mm. Um, or you know, join our community or yeah. something like that. No, I think I, I really like the one you say, like you know, <laughs> a drinking club, drinking club with a karate problem. Yeah, and I think that's very good. You know, also like, you know, people who get it, you know, like yeah, sure. <laughs> what what's the book that you recommend the most to others? Um, if you want to learn something, I would uh, I always recommend War and Peace, just because it's got like it's long. Mm in those 1400 pages or whatever it is, it captures all of life. Um, it, it's somewhere in the story. It's a, it's a very sweeping book. It covers a lot of people's lives during the events of the, the, um, the European war of 1812. Mm. Just like it's got war in it. It's got peace in it. It's got, you know, love and hate and life and death and anything you can imagine. Um, wow. Stoy is also pushing his view of history on you, but that's interesting too. Mm. And then, but just for enjoyment, I like, um, I like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm. 
like Love in the Time of Cholera or uh, 100 Years of Solitude or, or one of those. Okay, sounds good. All right, I think uh, that's I think that's good place to end. Yep, so yeah, this has been time. great. Cool. Awesome. Well, was, thanks, Shu. This was a, a lot of fun. I look forward to, to seeing it coming out.